Welcome to Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive with Dr. Rebecca Risk. Do you ever feel that even though nothing seems seriously wrong and you pass all the medical tests, that you still feel that your health, pain, and fatigue are completely out of control? It doesn't have to be that way. Listen to the tips and suggestions given on our program today and take back control of your health. Now, here is Dr. Rebecca Risk. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Falling Through the Cracks. Today, we're talking with Arthur Sierra McCauley, who is a licensed clinical psychologist and the chief medical officer of soundminds.org, a popular mental health platform. He's been on the faculty of Harvard Medical School and chief psychologist of Metro West Medical Center. He's the author of several books, including The Stress Solution, Using Empathy and Cognitive Behavioral Therapy to Reduce Anxiety and Develop Resilience. And we're discussing this today. So, Arthur, welcome to the show. Becca, good morning. Good morning. So what made you decide to write this book? Well, you know, so many people in my practice, and I'm I'm sure you've encountered this too, use the word stress because it just seems like in our current society so many people are stressed. And I, I see so many people that really come to me not because they're mentally ill, but because they're suffering, suffering from the symptoms of stress. So I decided uh, to write a book and really try to comprehensively address this phenomenon because it seems like it really has exacerbated a great deal, especially in the United States. Well, you know, I, I definitely agree with you on that when, you know, people have discussions with me all the time at work about um, sometimes it's hard for them to slow down and they don't realize what they're doing to themselves or um, I, I just don't think the way we have our lives set up is what we're meant to be doing. You know, we're, we're running around and, and doing lots of stuff and, and not stopping to kind of look at yeah. how we feel and, and what's going on. And, and it's, it's kind of, it's a lost art, you know? It, yes. You know, as I say in the book, we work too much, sleep too little, love with half a heart, and then we wonder why we're unhappy and unhealthy. <laughs> exactly. We, we live in a very fast-paced world where people have a, a very difficult time slowing down, listening, being empathic, and being present. Um, so, um, you know, s- saying all of that, um, I think it might be important for us to even talk about what stress is. I mean, everybody knows that word and everybody can say, oh, this is a stressful day. But um, a lot of people don't realize that that's even what they're experiencing. So can you just explain stress for us? Well, you know, we all have, Rebecca, we all have normal stresses. Um, but when stress accumulates, when people are misperceiving on a regular basis, and I, I link stress to perception because we again we all were in traffic and so forth and we get a little stressed but it doesn't last too long but when we misperceive we can exacerbate and accentuate stress consistently so that the stress hormone cortisol is running in our system con- uh, with with consistency on an everyday basis and when we do that when we have high levels of cortisol it causes negative thinking it causes weight gain inflammation hair loss it breaks down muscle tissue it causes flabbiness and memory loss and anxiety, and it also kills uh, neurons in the memory center of the brain. It also is very related to weight gain because it causes blood sugar levels to um, become imbalanced, and that produces excess fat cells and enlarges fat cells, and it makes us crave sugary substances. So ongoing uh, cortisol, the stress hormone cortisol, and we have ongoing... Uh, levels of cortisone in our system, it can be very destructive. Normally, when we have stress here and there and it doesn't last long, it's not very destructive. But when we are misperceiving chronically, and that's where cognitive behavioral therapy comes in because it actually corrects distorted thinking. And when we're misperceiving like with certain um, qualities like generalizing or black and white thinking or catastrophizing, accentuating, when we're distorting reality and we're not seeing what, what is in front of us clearly and accurately, we produce stress and we produce the stress hormone cortisol on a regular basis. Okay, so, um, it, you know, it's interesting the symptoms that, that you listed because, I mean, these are things that people complain about all the time, especially, I think, the weight loss and, and how we look. And then, of course, we focus on um, things that, aren't getting to the root cause, you know, and people are, you know, they're, they're getting more makeup or they're, um, you know, they'll go and do a fad diet. That's probably putting more stress on their body because of how unhealthy it is. And, um, 
you know, when you look at the epidemics going on in our Western society where there is so much weight loss and there is all those things that you listed, I think it's important for us to, you know, back to that conversation of, of the way our society is to, to start addressing this yeah. um, on a, you know, more of a global level than just an individual level. Oh, yes, a- absolutely. I agree 150%. You know, childhood obesity rates have tripled in the past 30 years. And almost 70% adults over 20 are obese, according to the Center for Disease Control. And the percentage of Americans that exercise regularly is now below 50%. So, you know, false beliefs, inaccurate perceiving, and a negative self-voice produce stress, which in turn reduces energy and and it creates a a state of depletion. And when our mood is low, when we're depleted and our mood is low, we don't feel like exercising. You know, we don't have the energy to exercise or take care of ourselves, or eat properly. Then our sleep is disrupted because the stress hormone cortisol regulates our circadian rhythms. And when stress, you know, the cortisol levels rise, we have a craving, as I said, for high sugar, high fat foods, and we go around in this circle that is very destructive. Mm-hmm. I think you've um, just explained how most people are feeling on unless they've already done you know the work to to work on that they're craving those things and they're feeling that way well i think most now, people don't even realize that there's a correlation between weight gain and stress and mm-hmm. and, the, and that that the the stress hormone cortisol can do this i i often when i when i give talks i find people are amazed that that there is a relation and as you said earlier i think many people are stressed and they don't know it you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's become sort of like living with a low-level temperature. You know, you don't realize it until you don't have it. You don't yeah. realize that you do have it. Yeah, I agree. Um, well, and we don't realize what it is. We think the, the way we're living is normal when we're getting up early and dealing with your kids, and then you're going to work, and you're stressed at work, yeah. and then you're home late, and then you're driving your kids around, and then you're doing chores, and you go to bed. And where is where is that time that's not where you're doing something? running yeah. around doing something. You know, when so, I, see, I often see people on a Monday and, I, and I'll ask them how their weekend was and when people tell me how much they got done, you know that they're just not aware of how much stress there is in their lives. They don't talk about enjoyment or enjoyment with their spouse or their children. Well, I got this done, I got that done, I got my to-do list done and, you know, I try to tell people, you know, when we leave this earth, we're still going to have a to-do list in our pocket. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're right. So, in your book, you're, you you know, the stress solution, you, you talk about using empathy, which I think might be, um, it, it was a very different um, approach from other stress solutions that I've, I've read about and heard about. So, um, I'd like to talk about that a little bit, and I think we need to start with what exactly empathy is. Well, empathy, Rebecca, is the capacity to understand and respond to the unique experiences of another. It means looking beyond the surface and seeing into the heart and soul of another human being and also knowing how to express what you see or observe. So being able to put it into words. And the interesting thing about empathy is that when we give and receive empathy, we produce the stress hormone, the, we produce the calming hormone oxytocin, which is the opposite of the stress hormone cortisol. It's a near miracle neurotransmitter. And you know, oxytocin is what is produced when women are pregnant. And we can produce this. We know when people give and receive empathy, meaning that they slow down and actually listen from an empathic stance to each other and see beyond the surface of what people are saying, it reduces anxiety and cortisol levels. It helps us live longer. It helps us recover from illness and injury. It promotes a sense of calm and well-being. It also, interestingly, increases generosity, and it protects against heart disease, inflammation, and it reduces craving for addictive substances, the opposite of what the stress hormone cortisol does. And it creates bonding, an increase in trust of others, decreases fear, and it, and it allows us to open up. And in many ways, I always say that oxytocin, when we give and receive empathy and we produce this hormone oxytocin, it opens up, us up for love and it allows us to maintain intimacy in a very different way. So how is, how is this different from sympathy? Well, sympathy is rushing in in a, in a quick way to try to console people. I'll give you an example. Um, I had a client the other day who moved here from California, and her dad had passed away a year ago, and she was very, very close to her father, and she was devastated when her dad passed away. 
And then she heard a neighbor down the street who she did not really know very well, just had said hello to on an occasion. And she heard that her, that her father passed away, died. So she, she put together a, a, um, a basket of flowers and some food, and she brought it down to her neighbor, and she, she rang the doorbell. And when the woman answered, she said, oh, my God, I know you must be devastated. You know, my father died a year ago, and I heard your father passed away. I'm so sorry. I know how devastating it is. And the woman looked at her, and she said, well, I, you know, I really thank you for your generosity, but I'm not devastated at all. My father left us when I was two years old. I never met my father. I never knew my father. So, unfortunately, I'm not devastated because we had no relationship whatsoever. You see, sympathy rushed in to console without having the facts. Empathy slows down an, an approach to, maintain, to, to ascertain the facts. Empathy is very truth-oriented and objective-oriented So, because it slows down to try to understand what are the facts. And in, my, in this case, my client didn't know what the facts were. She assumed that this woman had the same experience as she did, and that's what, that's what drives sympathy. Sympathy is sort of identifying from our experience rather than seeing into the other person's heart and soul their unique experience. It, it, I think it, it's interesting the way you're explaining the, the way empathy is um, and as a solution to stress because I think that, um, you know, that, uh, obviously that connection is what people are missing when they're running around and doing all their chores and doing yeah. all of that. Yeah. And um, I've read some articles about the, the root cause of addictions are actually a lack of, of society and community. And, yeah, uh, and exactly. you know, they've done studies on rats and um, if they have, if they're on their own, they'll stay addicted to a substance. But if they're in a community, they actually will choose not to use it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so it makes a lot of sense. Yes, that's a good point, yeah. Rebecca. I think when people are connected and they feel understood, and when we feel understood through, through empathic interactions, we, we bond, we feel more comfortable, we have a brain change that actually maintains intimacy, and we have ne- less need for addictions. Um, we, 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 we really, you know, there was a, a study, um, I'm not remembering, a few weeks ago was released about having people watch a, um, like 10 people watch a very funny movie. And then they had them go to a cafeteria and have lunch. And then they had another group of people watch a very distressing movie, one that actually had scenes that were very tragic and disturbing. Those people ate far more at when they sent them to the cafeteria than the people who actually enjoyed each other. The laughter brought them together, and they had a, more of a connection. The people who were watching tragic uh, scenes actually didn't really talk to each other very much, and they went to the cafeteria in a very down mood, and they ate far more and far more sugary substances than the other group. Hmm. Um, yeah, that, that makes sense. Um, so, I mean, you talk about um, this as a, a stress solution, um, but of course, how can somebody go about and learn how to do this? Well, in my book, at the end of each chapter, I have exercises that I ask people to engage in because I tell stories about people that I know and that I've treated, and I ask, what do you, who do you identify with and which cognitive distortions do you do identify with? You know, which ways are you learning through reading through these chapters? And this book is more of a workbook, Rebecca. It's not something that I encourage people to read quickly, but actually ask them to read it slowly, a chapter at a time. And at the end of the and end each chapter, I ask you to you know see which which one of these cognitive distortions that you saw people using, whether it's generalizing or black and white thinking or catastrophizing. Which ones do you use, and how does it interfere with the way you see people and the way you see yourself? And then also, I ask at the end of each chapter to take an action, because I, I believe change is an active process. You have to do something with it, just like empathy. It's it's not enough to have empathy; you have to do something with it for actually to it to make a change in our lives. So this this book is very action oriented, and it's very directive in the sense that I'm encouraging people to to work to do the work, and then actually to share it with someone close to you at the end of each chapter. So I think as time as, as you go through the book that you learn how empathy calms the emotional brain so that you can perceive more accurately and thoughtfully. And when you learn to perceive accurately, it's crucial to reducing stress and, most importantly, old biased thinking. 
that's based on early conditioning that distorts reality and causes unnecessary tension. And then also there's a, this aspect in the book is that it, it actually makes a brain change. You know, we're changing our brain chemistry when we correct distorted thinking. And I think that this can be learned, but you have to take it slowly, and I don't think we can do it alone. That's why I encourage people at the end of each chapter to share what you're learning and what your, what your introspection is bringing you because we're all too subjective and we need feedback from other people that care about us and that are rational centered people that can give us really realistic and truthful feedback. Okay. We're going to take a quick break. I want to talk more about the the distorted uh, thinking that you're talking about. So we'll do that after the break. Today we're talking with Arthur Sierra McCauley. He's the author of The Stress Solution, Using Empathy and Cognitive Behavioral Therapy to Reduce Anxiety and Develop Resilience. We'll be back shortly. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. The largest syndicated alternative health talk program has come to the Voice America Network. The Dr. Bob Martin Show is the program that will answer your health questions and help you to heal your own body of many different ailments. Each week, you'll hear the answers that Dr. Bob gives to his callers that help them to be their own doctor most of the time. We'll also discuss developments on the health care front and what you need to do to keep your body in top form. The Dr. Bob Martin Show airs Wednesday mornings at 9 a.m. Eastern, 6 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness. We are bombarded with information daily about happy life strategies, beauty products, and business success ideas. Are they truly going to make a change or just take the change out of your pocket? Tune in to Shelly's Show and Tell with host Shelly Hancock. Shelly will explore and recommend proven business ideas as well as show you how to use the law of attraction to create health, happiness, and a prosperous business. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Health and Wellness. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Falling Through the Cracks with your host, Dr. Rebecca Risk. To reach the program today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email directly to Dr. Risk. The email address is anantacalgary at gmail.com. Now, back to Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive. Hi, and welcome back. Um, Today we're talking with Arthur Sierra McCauley. He's the author of The Stress Solution, Using Empathy and Cognitive Behavioral Therapy to Reduce Anxiety and Develop Resilience. So, Arthur, before the um, the break, you mentioned a few times about, um, you know, uh, catastrophizing and black and white thinking, and, and I think there are some other ones. Can you explain what that is? Well, these are ways that we, when we're, when we're hurt early in life, um, let's say we're, we're exposed to a lot of trauma or exposed to a lot of criticism. When, when you're hurt early in life, those hurts are stored. In fact, interestingly, they're stored by the stress hormone cortisol in the emotional part of the brain. And we hold on to these ways of perceiving. For instance, um, you know, instead of seeing all the variables in a situation, which is what empathy helps us do, black and white thinking, it, we, we automatically, if someone looks like someone that hurt us or criticized us, we automatically assume that that person is, is going to be negative to us or not kind to us. Or if we, look, we grew up with a lot of anxiety, we, we may catastrophize another cognitive distortion, meaning that you know, when we hear there's a storm, for instance, I know we were talking about the snow where you are this morning, and, and you might autom- if you're catastroph- if you're grew up with a lot of anxiety, you could easily catastrophize the storm. Say, oh my God, you know, probably we're going to lose our electricity or we won't be able to celebrate Thanksgiving or you're, you're taking it beyond where it is. And that's what cognitive distortions do. And of course, they, they produce a lot of stress unnecessarily. And the brain doesn't differentiate between what's real and what we're, we're thinking. It's sort of like, you know, when we watch a movie and, and, it, and it's a very dramatic scene and our heart beats fast, our brain thinks we're in that movie. So if you keep repeating 
the, the idea that we're going to lose our electricity or the storm is going to, you know, blow a tree down on our house. And, and if, you, if you keep exaggerating like that, you are filled with cortisol all day long. What empathy teaches us to do is to slow down. You know, empathy slows down emotion to a manageable degree so we can perceive accurately. And then, and, and then as you practice doing that, you reduce your stress level significantly. And I always say the key, the key two words are slow down. The faster we perceive, the faster we're moving in our mind, the more unlikely we, we are to perceive reality and perceive the truth. Empathy is about perceiving the truth. Cognitive distortions take us away from the truth, and they take us into stressful a stressful state very quickly. Okay, so um, how does somebody overcome these thinking? As I, you said, slow down. Um, is there anything else that we should know? Well, you know, early in life, we create a novel, a fictitious story about ourselves that we re- that we write based on what we think is being reflected back to us from those around us, as if we're looking at ourselves in a mirror. But if the mirrors you're looking into are cracked or inaccurate, you get a distorted view of yourself as, you're, as if you were looking in a circus mirror. So as a result, you create an inaccurate story about yourself, and this story sets the stage for a rational belief system. And we can't change that story alone. We're all too subjective. But we, as I said earlier, we need a group of people in our lives that help us rewrite this story by giving us honest feedback. So what, what I'm trying to teach people in, in this book is that a lot of the reasons that you have stress is you have certain beliefs about yourself that may be untrue. So many people grow up thinking they're not intelligent, they're not athletic, they're not attractive, uh, they're not good in science, they're not good in math. And, you know, it's all from early conditioning that really was based on some people that probably gave us feedback that weren't really objective themselves. So we all, as adults, have to focus on rewriting our story. I always say that that early story was a novel. We have to make that fiction story a nonfiction story, and, that, and in that way, we, we, be, we get a more accurate view of who we are, and then we can see others more accurately as well. Okay. So, um, you know, you've mentioned about changing our brain as well, which I think is what you also mean by rewriting our story. Mm-hmm. And, and this brings in neuroplasticity, which is not something a lot of people understand. They think, well, this is the way I am, and it's going to be yeah. that way. So yeah. can you explain that a little bit? Well, neuroplasticity is a term that, you know, really became quite popular in the last 20 years or so, as you know, Rebecca. And what mm-hmm. it means is that we often talk about how children, we're all hardwired early in life. The truth is what we've discovered through neurology and neuropsychologists have proven that we're not hardwired, we're softwired, meaning that the brain can change by new experiences. So, for instance, you know, this is when we, when we practice trying to understand who we are, coming to really understand who we are through realistic feedback from other people in our lives as adults today, we come to realize that we can change through new experiences. If, you know, I have, a, I have a good friend who I, I met when my, my friend uh, married to a friend of mine, and when I first met her, she, I remember her telling me that she was not athletic and that she loved sports, but she never even tried them because she didn't think she had any athletic ability. Well, long story short, my friend started, uh, who was then her husband, became her husband, started playing tennis with her. Well, today she's a high school tennis coach. But this mm-hmm. is a woman at 22 told me she was not athletic at all. You know why she was to- she was told that by her dad. Her dad didn't encourage her to exercise at all, because he had this thing about the boys could play football and soccer and basketball, but girls weren't meant to do that. And she grew up with a bias, a bias that unfortunately she believed. But then when she got some realistic feedback from myself and her husband to be, you know what? Basically, what he was saying to her, you know, I don't know whether you're athletic or not, but let's see. The, the truth is she is quite athletic, and she's an excellent tennis player. But if she hadn't been exposed to someone who gave her realistic, truthful feedback rather than a bias that she received as a little girl, she would, have, she would never be a tennis coach today. Okay. So um, it, this, this is 
you know, interesting, and I think a lot of people don't think of it this way. And I, I think it goes also back to our conversation about stress, and I'm, I'm doing all of this, and, and you're saying just slow down and, and look at and see how you can change that and learn to change yourself so, it, so it's not as important. Is that, I mean, even that to-do list? Yes, because what we need to realize is that we've all had past disappointments. We've all had emotional pain. But past disappointments or emotional pain can program your brains to jump to conclusions very quickly when we sense similar circumstances to the past. You know, um, and, and that's what I'm talking about, meaning that we have ways of perceiving based on some of the past hurts we've experienced. One of the women in one of my group sessions, uh, for instance, she was married to an active alcoholic who was physically abusive. And then I added a man who's a recovering alcoholic, and he's six foot seven, 275 pounds, a former professional athlete. And immediately she said, I don't know if I can stay in a group with him. And I said, what do you mean? She goes, I can just tell by, by the way he walks, the way he acts, he's one of those violent alcoholics. Well, her husband was a violent alcoholic, her ex-husband, but this man has never hit anyone in his life, and he actually is, is quite demure and, and soft-spoken, and even though he was a professional athlete, he's valued in the group as one of the best listeners in the group. But you see, her husband was a big man, he was alcoholic, this man is a recovering alcoholic, and he's a big man, so her brain made an immediate association that this man is going to be violent and aggressive. She had to learn that all large men who are alcoholics are not aggressive and not violent. But through this new experience, she changed her way of perceiving people who look like her ex-husband or who've had a history like her ex-husband. Okay. Um, you talk in your book about performance addiction. Like, what is that? Well, performance addiction is the belief that perfecting appearance and achieving status will secure love and respect. It's an irrational belief system that's learned from early familiar experience, and it's reinforced by our material appearance-driven society. You know, my first recognition of performance addicts came about largely as a result of working with a lot of people who embodied the qualities that are highly regarded in professional and public life. You know, their resumes were very impressive, but I noticed that despite their capabilities, they seemed to have little regard for their personal achievements or their physical appearance. They all seem to be what I call scoreboard watchers. Every day, you know, they took inventory of how well or how terribly they were performing, how attractive or dreadful they looked in the mirror. And they, they're people that have grown up because they've been taught that really the way, to, the way to receive and obtain love and respect is that you have to keep achieving more and that you have to look better. And you know, in our society, it, it, it is, it, we, we really are burdened with this tremendous emphasis on appearance and achievement. And, and men seem to be more on the achievement area. Women may be, generally speaking, more on the appearance. But there are many men and women who suffer from both aspects of performance addiction. Okay. And so um, does the cognitive behavioral therapy help people to overcome this performance addiction, what does it look like after when they're not feeling that way? Because I think everybody can relate to that. I mean, we have yeah. to have a good job. We have to have a house. We have to have the family on time. We have to do all these things. And so what does it look like when you, when you don't have that performance addiction? I think when people learn that if you, truly, if you truly want love in your life and you truly want to learn how to maintain love, you have to know how to develop and expand your capacity for empathy. Because no matter how attractive you are or how much money you have, if you're not a human being that knows how to listen and be present with other people, and if you're not a human being who knows how to share empathy with others so that they feel understood by you and you by them, your connection with the, those, that person will dwindle. You won't be able to maintain it. So empathy, I think particularly when people realize this, and I accent this a great deal in the book in terms of talking about many marital relationships, is that when you don't have empathy for the person that you supposedly love, and you're, it, it's what I call image love. You're only basing your love on what they look like or how much they have, but you don't really love them. You, you know, real love is based on em using empathy to enter the heart and soul of another person and loving who they are, not just, for the, not just what they've achieved or how their resume reads. You, you can't love a person long-term based on a resume or based on their appearance. You know, people's appearance change dramatically based on how they act with you. You know, you might think someone's handsome or beautiful, 
but if they're abusive or they're critical or they're condescending, it grows old very quickly, and you don't really want to be around those people. I think that uh, we can all relate to that, you know, and, uh, you know, I've always as seen, you know, it's, it's how somebody acts that really is what makes them beautiful, not what their clothes are or what their hair is or, or what they look like. It's um, if if you're not a nice person, it makes you ugly. Yes, it does. And I yeah. think, you know, unfortunately, we, we emphasize so much on appearance, Rebecca, that it takes it, it takes people a while to learn that and to learn what is love really made up of. I mean, that's why at the end of this book, I have the chapters of, you know, authenticity and, and, and giving and goodness, because, you know, we tend to get what we give in life. And people who give more have less stress. We know that people who volunteer, people who are naturally giving, people who offer their service to others um, tend to be happier and tend to be better to be around. And, and they, you, you get the feeling that they want to be with you for who you are, not just for what you do. And that's a very good feeling. I mean, that makes everybody relax. And when we're relaxed and when we have that kind of connection, we're, we're more open for love and we change our brain chemistry. We produce oxytocin, that, that, that miracle neurotransmitter that we spoke of earlier, that helps us bond and feel safe with others. So um, you mentioned authenticity. And um, um, what does that mean? Well, authenticity really means being yourself. And, um, you know, someone asked me not, not long ago in one of my groups, why is being authentic so important to reducing stress? And, and I said, well, you know, when we substitute our inherent personality, our natural personality, for one that's trying to please or gain acceptance and love, it's a failing proposition because really pretense is a burden that's depleting and, and it makes it difficult to maintain intimacy because closeness to others is based on being able to be open, genuine, vulnerable. You know, authenticity attracts others in powerful ways and allows us to feel comfortable in our own skin. And authentic relating enlivens the spirit and it gives us the energy and confidence to go out into the world, tolerate stress, and maintain resilience so that we can come home with our self-respect and integrity intact. And it makes people want to be around you. You know, when we're authentic, we, we, we accept our imperfections. We're not trying to be perfect. When you try to be perfect and please other people, you end up being depleted with low energy. Plus, you don't make other people feel comfortable, you know, because they they feel like you're always trying to be so uh, perfect and and be enamored by the other person that it, it makes people feel like they have to be the same way. They don't feel comfortable. Our nervous systems talk to each other. And if you know that one person is trying so hard to be pleasing, it doesn't make another person feel that they can let down their guard and just be who they are. Hmm. Um, I also like the that you use the word vulnerable, which is something I think most people are afraid of. Um, but when we're look, doing emphatic listening and um, you know working on all these things, it, it seems like it's probably a really important thing for us to to touch on. Well, you know, being vulnerable means that I have nothing to hide. I can be myself. I'm not, trying, I'm not trying to pretend that I'm someone else. And that's why I use the term image love in the book. When, when, you, when image love is working, people are pretending with each other. No one's really being themselves. But over time, that veil drops. But some people run away when, when they're vulnerable because they're afraid to be seen for who they are, as if there's something wrong with them. And that's where some of these distortions come in, not knowing what your real value is. You know, most people think, you know, self-growth is, is finding out what's wrong with you and correcting it. My view is that it's not really about what's wrong with you. It's about uncovering what's always been right with you that you're afraid to show to other people. I love that. Um, I think that's way less stressful as well. Um, yeah, you know, I mean, really a lot of people, that. yeah, why would you want to do work on yourself if it's just going to point out all the wrong things you're, you're doing and you are, which we're already yeah. doing to ourselves anyway. Yes. Yeah. yeah um, which, little, go ahead. little children are very comfortable with each other. You know, when you watch them in a playground, if you talk to kindergarten t- teachers or preschool teachers, they talk about how comfortable they are, how at ease they are, and how they can make relationships with people from other countries. And, and they, their ability to be empathic with each other, boys and girls, is quite profound. 
But then teachers will tell you by the time they're in the third, fourth, or fifth grade, you can see dramatic differences because now they've undergone a lot of conditioning about what's mm-hmm. acceptable and what isn't acceptable and who they should be talking to and who they shouldn't be talking to. And, you know, they've heard a lot about what their parents think. So their natural giving ways of, of in, interacting with others can change through, those, through that conditioning, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I love this topic. Today we're talking with um, Arthur Sierra McCauley. He's the author of The Stress Solution, Using Empathy and Cognitive Behavioral Therapy to Reduce Anxiety and Develop Resilience. We're going to take a quick break and be back shortly. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Hi, I'm John Rainey, Chief Financial Officer of United Airlines, and I'm honored to be the National Chair for the 2015 March for Babies campaign for the March of Dimes. United is a proud supporter of the March of Dimes mission to improve the health of babies and fight premature birth. We're helping the March of Dimes fund breakthroughs in research and community programs that help more mothers have full-term pregnancies and healthy babies. Please join us in working together for stronger, healthier babies. Visit marchofdimes.org. Frankly Speaking About Cancer is a program designed to empower survivors and their caregivers to deal with the social and emotional challenges of cancer. The show will invite physicians, researchers, nurses, social workers, patients, and caregivers to share their advice on how to live a better life with cancer. Join host Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community, Tuesday afternoons at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Falling Through the Cracks with your host, Dr. Rebecca Risk. To reach the program today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email directly to Dr. Risk. The email address is anantacalgary at gmail.com. Now, back to Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. Today, we're talking with Arthur Sierra McCauley. He's the author of the book, The Stress Solution, Using Empathy and Cognitive Behavioral Therapy to Reduce Anxiety and Develop Resistance. So, Arthur, in your book, um, you have a topic about prejudice. Can you just explain why that's so important for us all to recognize? Yes, I, 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 I was so glad that my publisher allowed me to write a chapter on prejudice because especially in the United States right now with our presidential election and the emphasis on aggression, insults, lying, lack of integrity, you know, is symbolic of the de-emphasis of the importance of character and empathy currently dominating our elected officials. Um, So whenever we encounter someone who we have an inherent prejudice against, whether it's conscious or unconscious, we begin to experience a degree of stress. And when we're stressed, we release the stress hormone cortisol, which we've talked about, and which limits our capacity for empathy, while also causing repetitive negative thinking. And, you know, prejudice is devoid of empathy, and it contributes to a stressful life as the distrust and cynicism of bias creates internal tension, and it creates fear in the presence of people who we we see as different and not part of our group. And in America right now, with the tremendous emphasis on... uh, I mean, really calling people names, uh, and uh, I don't know how it is in Canada at the moment, but you know, restricting the admittance of any Muslim into our country, or calling Mexicans rapists, and, and that they bring in drugs, and um, the the way of looking at different people rather than trying to understand that as human beings, we have we all have more in common than we than we uh, we are then we don't. We are more alike than not alike. But what's been happening here in this country, especially during this presidential race, is that people are highly stressed. They're very worried about the kind of vernacular that we use to talk to each other and that we have lost our way and that we're not... Empathy really is, is being reduced significantly and that, and that we are more focused on 
the emphasis on getting ahead, that getting ahead at all costs is more important. And, you know, empathy has decreased by 40%, and narcissism has increased by nearly 60%, 60% in incoming freshmen in, 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 in American universities. So um, it, it's, it's really not a, a, a good thing, and we need to understand what our prejudice is based on. Again, using empathy, is it based on truth? Or is it based on something that we learned when we were very young? You know, one of the one of, I, I I list about twenty comments um, given to me in the privacy of my office by different people that are prejudicial, and they're not all bad people. I mean, one of my clients who actually is a very nice man, he said to me there was a dog barking outside of my office. We had the windows open in the summer, and he said to me, "Oh, you know, uh, dogs don't like black people." And I said, really? What do you mean they don't like black people? And he said, well, it's, it's something about the smell, I think. And I said, well, how do you know that? He said, well, we had a black family on the corner of our street when I grew up. It was the only black family. And my mother always said, don't go near that family with our dogs. You know, the uh, dogs don't like black people. I said, did you ever go near that family with your dogs? He said, well, no, because we never walked down that side of the, to that corner because, you know, the dogs don't, didn't like them. I said, no, you didn't really answer the question. Did you ever really go and be in front of a, an African-American person with your dog to know how the dog might react? He said, well, I get, because I feel kind of silly. No, I, I never really have. I said, well, I have an uncle who's African-American. We call him the dog whisperer because he's so good with dogs. He has a dog. We have two dogs, and our dogs love him. So he said, really? And I said, yeah, really. Now, this is a man who has an MBA and is a, is a CFO in a major corporation, and he grew up believing that dogs don't like black people. I mean, that's just one example of the things we grow up learning from what we hear in our own families that have no factual basis whatsoever. But when we slowed this down and we had an empathic interchange, and again, empathy is focused on discerning the facts, he realized that it was an old view that he had as a child that it stuck with him his entire life. I mean, this man is 48 years old. So how can somebody, because um, he didn't recognize that that was a prejudice in himself. Yes. So how can we go about to recognize that, that we're thinking this way? Well, it, it's being open enough with people close to you to let them know what your thinking is. And when we're defensive and we react quickly, we, we continue our distorted thinking. When we slow down and examine the facts, which is what empathy encourages us to do, we, we have to admit that we probably all grew up with some form of bias, not only toward others, but toward ourselves as well. And when we can accept that premise, that we, we had to learn some things that were not accurate as children about ourselves and about other human beings, and now our job as adults, and that's what this book is entirely focused on, it's the heart of this book, is to find out where did, what did we learn about ourselves and others that's untrue. That's our job as adults. I think that's our responsibility as adults. Okay, so <clears throat> it's not just um, about others. Of course, you talk a lot about um, critical self-talk as well which yeah. I think uh, most people are really guilty of, um, even, you know, if they, they know it's wrong, we will still continue to do it because we're kind of set up that way. And, and how, do, how do we overcome something like that as well? Well, we, we try, uh, you know, what I think we need to accent is we, we need to try to find out the familiar things we say to ourselves when we're negative. You know, what, what do we say to ourselves? Because most people repeat the same record over and over again. You know, um, if, if you accept the fact that we all wrote a novel early in life, as I said earlier, then we try to find out what record is it that we play in our minds. Do we say, oh, I'm unattractive, I don't speak well. Learn, <laughs> learn what those negative, ask, those negative statements are. And then when we start to play them, you press the pause button so that you don't keep going and play the whole CD. You don't have to play all 23 songs. And the more you catch yourself uttering things that are not based in truth and try to find out what the truth is, the more they lose their weight. You know, they, they don't start to become as powerful because we, oh, I always, you, you know, you start to realize, I always say this about myself. Every time I re meet, meet a new person, I assume I'm less than. Based on what? 
you know, people go to a wedding and they and they sit around a table that they're seated at, and there's ten people they don't know, and they're already feeling anxious and stressed. Why? Because you're assuming you're not as good as the next person. What's that based on? These are all the important questions I ask people to entertain in the book, which is continually re-examining those old records and finding out what's accurate and what isn't. Maybe some is accurate, but I, I'm, 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 I'm pretty convinced that, that some is not accurate, and that's our job. And, and, you know, when you're close to other people and you're open with other people, you can even ask them, what's your opinion? Do you think I'm not very bright or do you think I don't express myself well or did you think I, I express myself inappropriately in that interaction? You're open to feedback. If you're closed and you're hiding and you're rigid and you're defensive, you can't unlearn anything. And what's important to know is that these biases that we grew up with toward ourselves and others, they're learned. And anything that's learned can be unlearned. Not easily, but it, does, it happens over time. It, the inaccurate, once we realize that certain things are inaccurate that we're saying to ourselves, about ourselves, they will lose their weight over time because we replace them with what is accurate. Just like my friend who is now a tennis coach who grew up thinking she wasn't athletic because girls aren't supposed to play sports back in her day, um, she unlearned that because she was open to the feedback from some people who were trying to give her some objective accounts of who she is. Let's go see if you can play tennis. Let's go see if you can learn. Let's not assume that what you heard when you were eight years old is necessarily the truth. Um, I think that's something we all need to <clears throat> to approach. Because I think it also you said that when you when you write your book, a lot of it's inaccurate. And I think also that view as a child, when you don't have that that discerning reasoning as an adult to look, well, what I'm feeling isn't, you know, accurate. So I'm not going to let that become part of my book. You're just a child with feelings that's told things or experiencing things. Yeah. And yeah. and sometimes the way we're writing that is is not uh, the reality. Yes. Yeah. So in your book, you talk about self-care. What is that? Well, self-care involves how we take care of ourselves. It involves, of course, nutrition. It involves exercise. It involves sleep. And it involves meaningful relationships. And it involves the way we talk to ourselves. So it has five different components, which, which I address in one chapter in the book. And, and, I, and I talk, give an example of a woman who was resistant to taking care of herself based on some old biased thinking. But self-care really is, how do we take care of ourselves in those different areas? Do we eat well? Do we exercise regularly? You know, exercise, there's, there's nothing better. The, the two most important things to reducing stress is aerobic exercise and also the way we perceive. The way we perceive is probably number one, and aerobic exercise number two then eating, eating a reasonable diet, limiting sugars and all the, all the white things in our lives, the simple sugars, and l limiting the saturated fat, um, and being able to get enough sleep because when we're sleep-deprived, we produce more cortisol. When we produce more cortisol, we have very narrow thinking about ourselves and others. So the self-care piece is, is involved the overall way that we take care of ourselves, including how we talk to ourselves about ourselves. I think... You know, often uh, books on, on weight uh, and, and exercise involve different ideas about exercise and programs for eating well, but they don't really address the way we talk to ourselves. Because if you talk to yourself negatively all day, as I said earlier, your mood is going to be low. You, you, you wear yourself down because you have cortisol in your system all day long, and you're not going to want to take care of yourself. The other thing about self-care, self-care equals other care. If you don't take care of yourself, you hurt the people that are important to you in your life because they care about you. When we have relationships, when we're involved with other people, we don't take care of ourselves. We influence all of them. You know, if you and I got two hours sleep last night and we had um, three shots of whiskey and we, when we got up and we had three coffees with three sugars in each to try to wake up, we wouldn't be very good in this interview. Um, mm -hmm. So it's, it's not just about us as individuals. When we don't take care of ourselves, we don't take care of others either. And we affect them. And we, cause, we call what I call secondhand stress. Because now we cause other people to worry about us unnecessarily. Okay. So um, my, my experience with um, talking to people about self-care, especially if they're those, you know, with a family 
and a job and a partner and their day is like what we described before where they're getting up, dealing with the kids, going to work, et cetera, et cetera. Um, talking about self-care can actually cause stress for them. So how do, do you recommend somebody start with all of those things that you listed that are important for self-care? I think the most important place to start is to try to develop and expand your capacity for empathy. We're born with the capacity for empathy, but as we slow down, we limit the stress response, and we're in a, we're in a position to work through whatever is bothering us in a non-reactive way. And it, when it, it, you, it gives you the opportunity to learn more the truth about yourself. And in that, and in that regard, you, you'll form sustainable love, sustainable relationships. You know, the trusting foundation that empathy creates changes our brain chemistry, calms our soul, and puts us in a position to listen. And then we can open up and take in what we need to hear in order to rewrite our story and correct distorted thinking. And only then we can become who we're destined to be. Oh, I like that. <laughs> um, so uh, if anybody has um, any uh, questions or want to find your book or they want any information, um, do you have a website where people can find some information? Yes, my website is balanceyoursuccess.com. Okay. And uh, your book is really easy to find. It's on Amazon. And um, it is called The Stress Solution, Using Empathy and Cognitive Behavioral Therapy to Reduce Anxiety and Develop Resilience. Um, So um, thank you so much for joining me today. I actually really loved this topic. I think this was um, an important topic for everybody to hear. Well, thank you very much, Rebecca. I appreciate it. I, I enjoyed talking with you and uh, hope you get to Thanksgiving dinner without having too much snow interfere. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much. Um, next week, we're going to be talking with Patricia Tallman. She is the author of Restore Our Planet Diet. Um, so we're going to be talking about that. So be sure to tune in. Thanks so much for listening and make today a great day. Thank you for tuning in to this week's edition of Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive. Please join Dr. Rebecca Risk again next Monday at noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk more next week.